I do want to say today's topic is serving in the midst of sacrifice. And usually when we, we think about serving, we think of what we do with our hands or what we do with our feet. We think of a very active serving the Lord. Today I want to talk about what is behind our acts of service. Uh, that does require sacrifice from time to time. And that is the stance that we take for God in honor and glory of God, uh, in service of God that lays that foundation on which all of our work in service for God uh, is built. So that foundation of service is what I want us to talk about today and how we honor God uh, with our lives and with our firm beliefs and values and principles that the Holy Spirit has placed in our heart that, um, that, that comes to us from God's holy word that Tom has read so wonderfully this morning. I do want to say there are some relevant life lessons that we're going to discuss today from uh, the third chapter of Daniel. And the first life lesson that comes to us is this. You can have a religious experience without being converted. You can have a religious experience without being converted. And there's no better example of that than Nebuchadnezzar. If we remember last Sunday, when we talked about Daniel interpreting the dream, not only interpreting the dream, but telling the king the dream that he had. And the king was so taken aback that he fell on his knees in, in, in homage of, of Daniel. And he raised Daniel to a place of high status. And, and also Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were also raised to a high status. And, and that was just um, uh, in, in keeping with the king's uh, experience of Daniel's God being so wonderful and great. It was a conversion of sorts, and yet we don't see that. Uh, just a short time later, as we have recorded in the third chapter of Daniel, the very next chapter. You see, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't converted from his egomaniac uh, syndrome that he tended to have. And, and you know, it, it's a reminder to us that, that, um, that, that people with these kinds of, of uh, self-promotion, uh, self-exalting, uh, measures uh, are not just from days gone by. We remember that this story comes from Babylon, which is present-day Iraq, and it hasn't been too long ago that we knew the name uh, Saddam Hussein, who who was the ruler and and who even uh, murdered his own people uh, in lifting up himself to high status. So, so this is an issue not of just days gone by, but we have to be constantly um, alert and aware of this uh, egomaniac syndrome that sometimes comes to us. In, in Matthew, the seventh chapter, Jesus talked about how we would, he would deal with the unconverted religious folks in the day of judgment. And we read from Matthew 7, 22 and 23, may, uh, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. You, you know, many people believe that God exists and that Jesus is the Son of God. But Jesus is quick to remind us even the devil believes that. 
Many people believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, uh, the sins of all humanity. But even the devil believes that. And the key is to believe that Jesus died for us personally and for us to receive that gift um, in, in such a way that we understand that conversion and our life of conversion being living, saying, thank you to God for all that God has done for us. That's true conversion. When you do that, God has permission to change our hearts and to save our souls. We're converted. Yet what the king experienced um, was not really a conversion. It was more or less spiritual goosebumps. (laughs) He had an emotional experience that didn't last very long. It didn't go soul deep with the king. Now when we pick up in this third chapter, we've uh, heard it read, and it was so uh, beautifully stated in the children's story today uh, by Tasha, uh, that we have this this um, understanding that the king was erecting this 90-foot statue of himself, most believe. And this 90-foot statue was nine feet wide, and it could be seen from all over. Now, let's put that in perspective. The Statue of Liberty is 130 feet tall. But for those of us who are Texans who've driven south on I-45, and we've come into uh, to Huntsville, we've seen that great statue of Sam Houston, and it appears to be huge. It's just 67 feet tall. So, so we have a 90 foot tall statue, a golden statue that is on the plain of Dura, which is just south of the modern day city of Baghdad. And, and, and Baghdad is a flat desert, so you could see this statue from miles away. I saw a funny this a week, somebody posted on Facebook, it said, you know, West Texas is where you can watch your dog run away for two weeks. <laughs> and that's the way it was uh, on the plain of Dura. This statue was looming. And, and no doubt it could be seen for many, many miles. You, you know, I can understand this kind of self-promotion to take many forms. And, and, and maybe milder forms, but nonetheless self-destructive. When, when we say, look at my business, I built my business from scratch, just, uh, and, and talk about just how hard we worked and the good judgment that we have. Look how big it's grown. It's a statue. And behold my house, look at the square footage that I have and, and all of the antiques and the wonderful artwork. Look what I've built. It's a statue. And we clergymen are not immune to this temptation. Look at how big my church is. We have this many members. And look at our budget. We spend this much money. I've just written a book. (laughs) It's a statue. And then like a slap in the face comes the truth from Proverbs, the 16th chapter, the 18th verse that we do well to remember. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. The background to the scripture that we read today, the preceding scriptures, uh, tell us about Nebuchadnezzar and, and the way he called the civil servants of the kingdom on the plain of Dura to dedicate this statue. 
He had the orchestra ready to play. He commanded that when the orchestra would play, all of the people would fall down and worship this golden image. And anyone who did not would be thrown into a fiery furnace. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was famous for saying, and I'll tear them limb from limb. He said that last week. He said that this week in the third chapter. But now he's added a a, a variation. I'll throw you into the fiery furnace. Now remember that in the previous chapter, these Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had been the administrators of the province of Babylon. And obviously, other officials were jealous, and they told on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that these Hebrew boys were not about to bow down to the statue because the Hebrew boys knew the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them and worship them. That's one of the Ten Commandments from Exodus, the 20th chapter, the, the fourth verse. So Nebuchadnezzar called the boys into his court and asked them the question, and where was Daniel? We, we don't really know. Perhaps he was out on, on official business, but he wasn't uh, around. And the Hebrew boys made a beautiful response to the king when he questioned them about their inactivity related to bowing down before the statue. They said, O king, we offer no defense. If you throw us into the furnace, our God is able to save us. He's able to save us. But this is the verse that you need to underline. It's the 18th verse of the third chapter. But even if God does not save us, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. Now that is integrity. That's activity based on deep-seated principles. They would not sacrifice what they'd committed their lives to. They would not sacrifice their deep understanding of who God was and and the only God that they would ever worship. They'd establish that. It was uh, their bedrock belief. Friends, that's real faith. You know, sometimes we try to bargain with God, don't we? I think we've all been a little guilty of that from time to time. Uh, saying when we get into a real pickle, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. It's as if God is is the, the great conductor of let's make a deal. And, and yet, that, that's not the way God acts. And, and sometimes I've run into church folk who um, ha- have a real disdain for God or have a problem with God or or angry with God because they prayed about something and it didn't turn out the way they wanted. Their marriage wasn't saved or their business wasn't wasn't spared or or, or this didn't happen or that didn't happen uh, or someone wasn't healed. And and, and there's that, that misunderstanding of who God is and that anger toward God that God didn't come through. You may be in some kind of crisis today facing some kind of tension or, or, or criticism or tough problem. You may be asked big things. That, but don't put demands on the limits of God. 
Verse 19 says that Nebuchadnezzar had a temper tantrum when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego took that strong stance. He had a temper tantrum and he, he, he had them ordered, thrown into the fiery furnace. And he also told them to turn up the heat seven times. I don't know how they did that. But, but turn up the heat seven times. It was so hot that the, the men who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace were consumed by the fire. But the boys weren't. The Hebrew boys weren't. And the king could, uh, could see the boys when he looked through the, the door where the air and the, 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 the wood, the fuel was put into that, that, that furnace. And he could see that there were not only the three boys there, but there appeared to be a fourth. Now, now it's been said that maybe that fourth was an angel. Maybe so. We don't have that described. But maybe that fourth is like Tasha said, uh, was God. And, and maybe that fourth was, as we would say, the Son of God. In, in verse 25, this is in Daniel in the Old Testament, the king says that he sees a fourth person in the furnace. And he said, it looks like a son of the gods. I like to think that fourth was Jesus. We, we know that, that, that Jesus was not just born in Bethlehem, and that's when Jesus comes on the scene. He comes on the scene in a different way then. But we know from Scripture that we remember that Jesus Christ existed with God the Father from before the beginning. So I like to think that this fourth person was Jesus because that's who's with me when I'm in the fiery furnace. That, that's who I see beside me when I struggle. And old King Nebuchadnezzar was shocked yet again. The Hebrew boys were brought out of the furnace. Not a hair on their head was even singed. There was not even a smell of smoke on them. And in verse 28, the king praised the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who rescued them. And he said, no other God can save this way. No other God. That's another reason I like to think that fourth person in the, in the furnace was Jesus. Because no other God can save like him. You know, I find three more life lessons I want to share. Three more truths that I want to share briefly. And the next one I want to share is that God's people don't give in to peer pressure. The Hebrew boys didn't, and neither should we. I remember this past week, some years ago, I used to watch a candid camera like many of us did when we just had an antenna and we got three stations in the country. And we could get candid camera. And I used to chuckle at the spoofs that were done on candid camera. I remembered one this past week regarding peer pressure. It was one of the famous tricks where uh, there was an elevator and there were people on the elevator, the actors, and they were all turned to the back of the elevator. And then the door would open and there'd be another person going to get on the elevator and they'd see everybody turn to the rear of the elevator. And what do you think they did? They did the same thing. <laughs> Knowing quite well that's not the way you ride an elevator. But the peer pressure is such that they just followed the crowd. 
I was reminded too, I've got a friend, I hope he's watching this morning, Charles Thompson. He and I worked at First United Methodist Church in Houston back years ago, and we've been dear friends ever since. And we served with Bill Henson back in the day in downtown Houston. You went to work every day and you had a suit and tie and a light shirt. That was the dress code. And so um, I've been preaching the last couple of weeks in a little light blue uh, blazer. And uh, Charles has been teasing me about that. And last week he teased me about my tie. So uh, today, Charles, I want you to see I've got on a, a dark suit coat and a, a very conservative tie like the ones that you always wore. But let me tell you something. I've got faded out blue jeans underneath. <laughs> Peer pressure. We can laugh about it, but it, it also has a destructive element to it, doesn't it? You can say, preacher, I don't let other people influence me. Maybe you don't. But what about when you're out eating with friends and someone at the table tells a racist or a sexist joke and it's demeaning and stereotyping people and, and, and do you laugh? Though you know that, that, that approving of such behavior is not serving God. Or do you say, let's not get demeaning of others. Let's carry on the conversation in another direction. How hard that is. Or somebody at the office, maybe the boss wants to have a, an annual office party at the casino or at a, at a club for, um, for a drink and that's served in the midst of, of sexual allure and it offends the best of your faith and your beliefs. Do you say, you know, I'm not going to go to the party? Or, or do we give in to peer pressure? Or someone posts something that is just plain crazy and obviously based on falsehoods. Do you post something respectfully disagreeing and evoke the ire of other friends? Friends, you know, that's quite a term. Or, or do you just move on and just try to ignore? Sometimes that's the easiest, but is it the best? The reason that the Hebrew boys were prepared for that big test with the statue was that they had prepared in advance what they believed. They knew what uh, they believed. They knew where they had to stand. Someone said the decisions that we make in the best moments protect us from our worst moments. Make a prior decision about what is your bedrock belief. What, what are those principles, those values that, that you just won't move on? You won't sway, no matter what the pressure. St. Paul's great command in Romans 12. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And here's another life lesson. When the heat is on, Jesus is close. I want you to remember that. When the heat is on, Jesus is close. When you don't get that promotion at work because you don't play the office 
politics or you didn't do this or that that you knew better in doing, Jesus is close. When you don't get elected cheerleader because some ridicule you for being Miss Purity, Jesus is close. When some of your colleagues at work say, you're just too narrow-minded when it comes to morality, Jesus is close. When someone calls you a racist just because of your party affiliation as a Republican, or somebody strongly insinuates that you're not a Christian believer because of your party affiliation as a Democrat, Jesus is close. Where can you be sure that Jesus will show up in the next fire? When can you be sure that Jesus will show up when when you're in the furnace? How do you know? Because Isaiah said it long ago. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Jesus always shows up when his children dare to take some heat for his glory. Here's a final life lesson. After the fiery furnace, a disciple is better. After the fiery furnace, a disciple is better. You know, an athlete is better after he or she has been in um, high-pressure games, right? You've had that experience. A soldier is better after that soldier has endured combat. A Christian is better after she or, or he has been through some fiery furnace with Jesus. And in the last little book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, we have an interesting description of God as a refiner of the precious metals. Malachi 3.3 we read, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. When I was in Tyler back before coming to Lover's Lane, which is 20 plus years ago, uh, there was a pastor there who's actually still there named David Dykes. He was the pastor of Green Acres Baptist Church. And he talked about God in a sermon once um, as being a silversmith, that God is like a silversmith. And he said the silversmith heats the silver not hot enough to damage it, but enough that the impurities are released and they float up to the top. And and then the silversmith can clear those impurities away. And, And guess how the silversmith knows when the silver is pure? It's when the silversmith can see his own reflection in the silver. When Jesus can see his reflection in us, we are becoming truly servants of his. When others can see the reflection of Jesus in us, we are seen as true servants of his. When our character, when our attitudes, when our churchmanship, when when our lifestyles, when that impacts all that we do, 
including our, our social media, including our, 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 our interactions in the office, including our work with friends, and including how we act at school with our peers. We have the priority to reflect our Lord. And when we do, we indeed are disciples. You know, in 1963, and I close, Martin Luther King Jr. was locked up in a Birmingham city jail by his archenemy, Sheriff Bull Connor. And for over 24 hours, King was held in solitary confinement, not even allowed a phone call. It was a kind of fiery furnace of sorts, but in the midst of this dark, cold, and quiet time, someone was there with him. It was Jesus. And before Dr. King left that confinement, the unseen one who had inspired him to write, inspired him to write one of the most eloquent documents of human history, a letter from a Birmingham jail. On April the 16th, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, among other things, but this particular quote, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. Dr. King, in the midst of that fiery furnace, he knew that Jesus was with him. He penned words that, that would impact Christian sisters and brothers everywhere. And, and though it took some years, much of what he marched for became law. Law of the land. It's when the law becomes the law of the heart. And the convictions of the Spirit when real action occurs. Jesus will not always keep you out of a fiery furnace. Friends, that's not the way faith works. It doesn't keep us out of those hard times. But Jesus will always meet us right in the midst, in the midst of those hard times. And always see us through.